Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word that um, is our true north. Um, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening that word to us as we, um, as we read it, proclaim it, preach it, sit under it. Um, I pray that we would do more than understand what it says, but that we would understand in the sense of obey today, Lord. Um, I pray for your comfort to go out on those who are suffering and doubting, and for your challenge to go for those who are sitting in apathy today. Thank you that your word can do all those things every time. Amen. I want to uh, start by just looking at a couple of photos. The first is a, a photo of the Grand Teton mountain range. Or mountain range. That's, uh, you know, iconic, right? Beautiful, serene, seemingly permanent. I hiked up there last summer, and it is, it's rock. I mean, it is not moving anywhere. It is... Uh, seemingly permanent. Um, in reality, the Teton Range is a result of unstoppable forces. The area where the Teton Mountains are was once flat and at times throughout history was covered by a shallow sea. But what was taking place beneath the surface was anything but tranquil. In the hidden depths of the earth, eastern and western tectonic plates were slowly moving on a collision course. The western plate rose up, forming the Teton Mountains. The eastern plate sank down, forming the valley that Jackson Hole, and, or Jackson now sits in, forming the valley floor. Next photo is something closer to home. Uh, it's the Puget Sound, right? This is beautiful. This is our backyard. Uh, this is another example of unstoppable forces at play. Now, if you ever notice, uh, when you go to the beaches on the Puget Sound, they're rocky, aren't they? They're not like the coastal beaches where it's nice and sandy where you can just lay down. There's all these barnacly rocks in your back. Why is that? That's because the, the Puget Sound was likely formed by the slow movements of receding glaciers that ground the mountains made of solid rock down into the passages that we now know as the home of orcas and salmon and ferry boats and kayakers, right? This is our, our backyard. Mountains and solid rock give the impression of permanence, but they are no match for the determined pressure and power of glacial forces and tectonic movement. I bring these two examples up because the gospel in reality is an unstoppable force. The reign of Jesus is unstoppable in reality. The things of the world that seem ancient and unmovable, like power exploiting the weak, death and war and disease and insecurity and greed and empire, the promise of the unstoppable force of the gospel is that those things will fall. They seem permanent now, but they will fall. In fact, the promise is that the way the world works now will be turned upside down so that the humble meek will inherit the earth. You've heard that one before from the Beatitudes, right? So that those who mourn the oppression of empire and death will be those who rejoice when the kingdom comes in full. Amen? So as the gospel spreads, it presses up against and displaces 
the powers that stand in its way. And when the kingdom of God butts up against the way of injustice or a corrupt empire, there is absolutely every time going to be tension, resistance, conflict. The Bible sometimes uses the the metaphor of childbirth, those birth pangs of the coming kingdom. The book of Acts is an account of how this unstoppable gospel, the reign of Jesus, begins to spread throughout Judea and the Roman Empire. In the story we're looking at tonight, we see uh, some of what this resistance is about. And as we work through the story, I want you to consider these questions. If the gospel is good news, then why would anyone resist it? If Jesus has come to save, then why is he so controversial? The story that we're covering kind of begins in Acts 3, and over the, the past like several weeks, we've looked at Acts 3 in, in, in slow motion over the course of three sermons. So if you're, you, know, you haven't been here in a while or you're visiting for the first time, let me just kind of refresh everyone's memory so we're on the same page. Peter and John these two disciples of the risen Jesus, are going to the temple in Jerusalem for the late afternoon time of prayer, around 3 p.m. local time. It was an ordinary day full of ordinary routines. And as they enter one of the gates to the temple, this gate called the Beautiful Gate, there's a man there who's begging alms. He's begging for money. And he's doing this because he's been crippled for around 40 years. His feet likely clubbed or turned inward somehow. And that's what he's doing. Again, an ordinary scene at the temple. Lots of people begged on the, on the steps of the temple every single day. People going to worship and pray. People begging. Ordinary day. But that's where the ordinary gives way to the extraordinary. This is where the current world is displaced by the in- unstoppable movement of the kingdom of God. Peter and John are walking by. They probably walked by that same guy other days. But all of a sudden, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they sense that they have the power of God and that faith is available to heal this man. And so they command the man to stand up, and not only does he stand, but he jumps and leaps with joy. Like instantly, his feet are corrected, and the sinews are straightened, and the muscles are strengthened, and this guy is leaping with joy. And of course, they're in a crowded temple setting. They're in the outer courts at this time. So Lots of people milling around and lots of people who knew that dude was a crippled guy and now he's standing up and they're curious. And so they come around and Peter takes an opportunity to proclaim, hey, it wasn't me and it wasn't John, it was Jesus. Remember the guy that was crucified just 50, 60 days ago? He's risen and his power allowed this man to be healed. And Peter then calls on the people to trust Jesus, and that is what leads us to chapter 4, which we're going to focus on this evening. So if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we will look at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, 
And the number of the men who came to, came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to the people of all Israel that by the name of Jesus the Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He who is the stone, or he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The very first line gives us the setting for the story as they were speaking to the people. Peter and John are still there in the temple teaching this crowd, explaining what had happened to the crippled man. And the text describes these three groups of people who now enter the scene, priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. The priests were vocational ministers who would serve terms at the temple. So they might think about like, I don't know, like a reservist or national guard, you know, two weeks a year or two weekends a year, something like that, you know, two weeks, whatever. I don't remember what the slogan is. Um, I was even a reservist for a while. But anyway, so you might remember that Jesus's uncle was Zacharias and in the birth narrative in Luke, Zachariah had to go serve at the temple and he was the one that went into the temple. He, he was a local priest in his hometown, but every so often his, his group of priests, his, his family name would have to go serve at the Jerusalem temple. And that's what's happening here. These priests are on rotating duty. So you've got these priests, and then you've got the captain of the temple guard, who is the number two man behind the high priest. And during this time period, he would have been an aristocrat and highly motivated to keep the peace so that Rome, the empire, would keep him in his position of power and in the good graces of how they viewed him. The third group were the Sadducees. Think of them as sort of permanent ordained priests who were stationed permanently at the temple. The temple was their business, right? And they lived there in Jerusalem full time and they were the top dogs. The most important thing to know about them is that they were all from the aristocratic echelon of society. So to be a Sadducee was almost as much of being a, a part of a specific social class just as much as it was a vocation, like a priest or a servant in the temple. The Sadducees at this time period were deeply aligned with the Roman political empire. And as a high social class, Rome allowed them great personal freedom and great wealth as long as they kept that religious stuff in check. Let the people come and worship. Keep order in the temple. Let them pray and spend their money on sacrifices as long as they pay their taxes and as long as they don't cause political problems. They can do whatever they want. Sadducees, that's your job. Okay? 
and we'll keep you propped up in power. No uprisings, no radical movements, no ripples in the pond Rome so desperately wanted to keep serene and smooth and efficient above all. So I find it fascinating that the Sadducees viewed the Torah, that's the first five books of the, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, they viewed that chunk of the Bible as higher than everything else. Now, every other Jewish person, Pharisees and regular teachers and rabbis, they all taught that all of the books of the Old Testament were equally authoritative, but the Sadducees only viewed the first five as more authoritative. And, and what's interesting to me is that they didn't view the prophets as as authoritative as the Torah. You can't take the prophets in the Bible seriously and be in bed with oppressive empires like Rome. You just, you just can't read Amos and do that. You can't read Obadiah and say, oh, I should, I should buddy up to Rome. You can't, you, it's oil and water. But if you take them out of the equation, well, then all of a sudden you get the Sadducees and their symbiotic relationship with Rome. So these three groups of people, propped up by the Roman Empire, come and investigate Peter and John. The Greek text says that they set upon them. It's like this idea of, uh, of predators pouncing on their prey. And we learn from verse 2 that these leaders were greatly disturbed or greatly agitated on the inside because of the content of Peter's preaching. And why specifically were they upset? Like, what, uh, why are they so disturbed? They were disturbed that Peter and John were teaching at all, because they didn't give them authority to do that, but specifically that they were preaching the resurrection of the dead through or in Jesus the Christ. We're going to come back to the significance on that. It's significant. But anyway, the plot must go on. So here we go. It's late in the evening. And rather than set up a trial, they simply arrest Peter and John for the night. You know, arrested for preaching the good news about Jesus, right? And, and the next day, we're introduced to some familiar names. There's this group of leaders who are called together. And in order to get to the bottom of what Peter and John are all about, who do we encounter? Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas was technically a retired high priest, uh, but back then the high priesthood was sort of a dynasty, kind of a family thing. So his son-in-law Caiaphas was the acting high priest, but you know, you see Annas back there pulling the strings. And after Caiaphas died in 37 AD, Jonathan, his next son, who's listed as John in this story, uh, is the high priest. And then this dude Alexander is the high priest, okay? So they're all related to Annas. So you see this dynastic, no nepotism, nothing going on there. Look the other way. Um, so you can sense the tension in the story. These are the same guys that tried Jesus in the middle of the night and beat him and then brought him before Pontius Pilate to be crucified on trumped up charges. So if you're in the early church and you're reading the story, you're like, what's going to happen to Peter and John? The suspense is so thick, right? These are the same ones that Jesus couldn't get justice. Can these men get justice? But I think Luke, who writes Acts, is, is smart. And, and by bringing up Jesus is also to bring up God's sovereignty over injustice. Because back in the that, in that gospel accounts, it looked like Jesus had lost, right? These guys did not give Jesus justice. They crucified him on a cross. But now we're after the resurrection, and the irony is, actually, Jesus is shown to be the victor. 
and that he rose from the grave, and, and Caiaphas and Annas are shown to be fools. So what is now going to happen? One of the things that we see as a clue is that the night that they got arrested, we see that God is at work, that, that the word had gone out and it didn't return void because 5,000 men now had believed in their, in their message. That doesn't include women and children who are also likely in the temple. Now, all kinds of speculation about, was it really 5,000? Did someone have a clicker? Why is it exactly 5,000? It probably wasn't 5,000 as a round number. But here's what that means in the ancient world. Um, first of all, in, uh, in Plato's Republic, the ideal size of a city is 5,040. So this idea of just this perfect size group of people, right? Um, also, you've got the feeding of the 5,000, and that's just so, so nice. So if there was 400-ish or 4,000-ish people that came to Christ, Luke putting 5,000 is a typical thing for an ancient historian to do because the numbers are always more qualitative in the ancient world than they are quantitative. We're so Western, we don't get that. I want to know down to the T, how many people take our stats? They weren't like that. The point is, a lot of people came to Christ. A lot of people believed right when these guys were arrested. And I keep thinking that unstoppable force of the gospel, like a glacier grinding down mountains, it will not be diverted by world powers. So there they are on, in a trial of sorts, which begs the question, why go to the trouble of arresting these no-name guys who are preaching this weird message about a man who was raised from the grave? Their concern, I think, is revealed in their question. Here's their question. It's from, right from the scripture. By what power or in what name have you done this? Have you healed this man? They're concerned about authority. That's what they're concerned about. In their ideal world, power and authority had to be regulated through authorized channels. And they didn't authorize this healing. And they didn't authorize these teachings. This unauthorized healing poses a threat to their position. And so instantly, we see their true motives betrayed. Rather than caring for the man who was healed, can you imagine what it would feel like to be healed after 40 years of not having your legs work? They don't even care about the man. They're fearful about what this would mean for their station in the world. Peter really couldn't have asked for a better opportunity. I mean, up until that point, I'm sure Annas and Caiaphas think, yes, we've totally arrested these morons, and now we've got them right where we want them. And Peter's probably thinking, I've got them right where I want them. Like, it would have been really hard to get this group together to preach at them, but now they're all here. So let me just share. You ask the question. Let me just share what's going on. And filled with the Holy Spirit, again, that's in the text, Peter speaks with wisdom and skill. And first he just, I don't know if he can help himself here. He is human after all. Uh, he just points out the irony of like, so I'm here because I helped a sick guy. Like, in the ancient world, to, to dishonor a benefactor in public it's about breaks every ancient taboo you could do. So these guys are just shown to be stupid fools right now. Uh, so Peter just had to say that, all right? And then he just goes on to answer their question directly. It was by the name of Jesus the Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By his name, this man stands here before you in good health. And then Peter quotes part of Psalm 118, which Tim read earlier. And it's making Jesus the fulfillment 
of that psalm. Jesus is the stone, he says, that was rejected by you, the builders of this temple. But now, he's become the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation block on which everything good is built. See, Psalm 118 in its original context is about people going to the temple to celebrate God's covenant faithfulness and his salvation. It's about how God grants victory over the powers of the world and delivers his people. Now, here's the thing. Psalm 118 isn't just about the stone temple. It's about God, where he is and what he's doing. And Peter is not just talking about a stone temple either. The temple had been corrupted because the Sadducees and religious leadership had melded it with Roman authority. No longer did they truly trust in God's provision and salvation. They relied on political compromise and risk management and diversified interests. Sounds very American. And what Peter is saying is that the focus that's in this ancient psalm has shifted from the temple, the actual stone place, to Jesus. It was as if the temple that once represented the salvation and grace of the living God is now found in and through the person of Jesus. You see that shift taking place in Peter's sermon. And here comes the stark truth. There's no salvation in anyone else, or you could say in anything else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among people by which we may be saved. Like, there's just not another, like, it's not Jesus, or you could go to this other thing, or this other temple, or you could do these laws. It's just Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. That's so audacious. Now, near the beginning of the sermon, I asked us to consider these questions. If the gospel is good news, why would anyone resist it? If Jesus has come to save then why is he so controversial? When the gospel, which is the good news of the reign of Jesus, when the gospel is on the move, it will be, not might be, it will be in tension with the powers that be. The gospel is controversial because people, and you and I are in this, we make other arrangements other allegiances. And whenever we see the church, for example, um, let's just take the, the pressure off of you and me as individuals for a minute. And when we, say the, when we see the church, for example, being too cozy with political power, whether it's in extreme conservative forms or whether it's extreme liberal forms, you can almost guarantee that there's corruption of the kingdom and compromise in the way of following Jesus. Okay. So anytime the church is too cozy with a political entity, you can almost guarantee there's going to be compromise in the kingdom or the way of Jesus. Now consider the Roman Empire. Rome promoted pluralistic, that means multiple faiths, and polytheism, meaning many gods were accepted. Um, their, their society was founded on that. They, uh, you know, the Assyrians used to conquer a place, and then anyone who didn't agree with them, they just put their head on a pike, right? But the Romans would conquer a, a kingdom over here, and oh, you guys worship Schoon? That's fine, you can worship Schoon, as long as you pay your taxes and prioritize Caesar. Like, Schoon's fine, he can be a demigod under Caesar, right? 
But you can keep your little rituals and stuff. I don't care. Just pay your taxes and do what you're told by Caesar. That's how Rome worked. That's actually the genius of Rome in some ways. And that's these Sadducees were granted power by keeping the peace of Rome with the Jewish people. And so what's the problem then with one more religion, with one more form of worship? Okay, this Jewish sect say that they want to worship this guy, Jesus. Who cares? Like, why is that a problem? Well, I'll tell you why it's a problem for Rome and why it's been a problem for empire after empire after empire. Two main reasons. First of all, Christianity, when it's lived out, according to scripture, is too earthy. It's too relevant. So many other religious movements in the Roman Empire were compartmentalized, right? So they consisted of special gatherings, literally secret handshakes, that's where that comes from, the mystery religions, um, prayers and sacrifices and seances and things, meals and customs, but they didn't encourage people to change their behavior outside of their religious bubbles. So they could exist within the empire and be good Roman people, kneeling the, the, bending the knee to Caesar, and they could do their own religious thing in closed doors. Their focus was on a spiritual afterlife. What happened in this life, they believed, had no consequences, no transferability with what I do with my body, what I do with my money, what I do with my life in this world. There was no continuity to the spiritual afterlife according to many of these religions. But Christianity is inherently embodied. Emily said earlier, uh, talked about Christmas being God with us, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, right? It declares a hope for tomorrow. Oh, I've got my, my hope for tomorrow. But it also demands an engagement with the world today. If we read the scriptures and, and do what they say, we can't get out of that. So the main teaching that rubbed up against the Sadducees and the Romans uh, was the resurrection. But back in verse 2, we learned that the leaders were upset about Peter's teaching about the resurrection. Notice that it wasn't just a teaching about, P, uh, about uh, Jesus' resurrection that upset them. Like if they were just teaching, hey, the guy Jesus you crucified rose from the grave, that wouldn't be such a big deal. It's like, okay, this one-off event. Great. Uh, that's weird. You can't prove it. Go ahead and teach that. The thing that they taught that was so disturbing to the Romans and the Sadducees is that through faith in Jesus, you can have a resurrection, that you can have an embodied, real, eternal life. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous because the biggest threat that people in power have over other people is the leverage of death. And if not just death by the sword, then death to your quality of life, death to your freedom, Right? And if there is nothing else, then that's a big pole with which to leverage you. But Christian resurrection believes or teaches that there is continuity between this life and these decisions and this character and the next. And if you're trying to oppress people, who know that one day they'll be resurrected to eternal life, and they take that seriously enough, then you've lost your leverage. You've lost your leverage. That continuity without fear of death makes a very formidable adversary to those in power. 
See, the leadership of Rome and the Sadducees, they could tolerate materialists because they could own them, bribe them, buy them. Materialists will always be lured by the lie that maybe this life is all the life there is, and so if I can find comfort, if I can find a little more for myself, then I should take it. And Rome could always tolerate spiritualists, right? So you've got materialists on one side and spiritualists on the other side. They could control lots of different spiritual, uh, spiritualities because spiritual people keep their noses out of the real material world. They've got their eyes in the sky and their hearts set purely on a spiritual afterlife. But Rome could not tolerate people whose spirituality caused them to push back against the materialist culture. And that's the weird niche that Jesus fits into and his disciples will fit into. True resurrection people don't need or don't desire the world's goods like power, commoditization of sex, intoxication as an escape, copious consumption. People that don't build their lives on those things are dangerous to empire because needs beget dependence. And dependence says, our economy owns you. Our leaders own you. But when you're free from those things, free from the distraction and addiction to material worldly things, then we can't be mastered or manipulated and we can speak freely. The message would cause uh, tension in the empire, but it's also, I think, and if you're not already getting this, let me just make it explicit, it's also a prophetic witness against Christians today who say we trust Jesus while instead bending what is right to align with power. And I, I mean, this is an occupational hazard of preaching this stuff as I'm, I'm wrestling with this all week, my whole life. And I'm sure you are too. We need to sit in that discomfort a little bit. This message should bother those of us, if you are here and you claim to follow Jesus, it should convict those of us who hope for a resurrection but still rely too much on the world powers as if this life is really all there is. We need to ask questions like, where have we as the church acquiesced to world powers for the sake of our own security or because we're afraid that the gospel maybe isn't really as unstoppable as that glacier or those tectonic plates. Anytime we align ourselves with a political party, rather than critiquing that party and praying for that party, we have de facto placed our faith in what world powers can do for us, rather than trusting in the unstoppable force of Jesus. We see that time and time again, every election cycle doesn't mean, doesn't, I'm not talking about right or left, we can only see what's right in front of us, can't we? But anytime we put our faith in this person or that movement other than Christ, first of all, we've lost our prophetic witness, which is the only thing we're really called to have. There's not much we can say about it. And as individuals, where have we bought into the American dream over and against the gospel mandate to love our neighbor as ourselves? Or to store up treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth? 
or to treat people as image bearers of the living God rather than as my competition or as a mere object of my sexual pleasure or as inferior to me as a way to make myself feel better. So many of us have bought into the lie that we can do whatever we want with our bodies without any ethical consequence, that we are sovereign over our lives rather than the living God who like gave us our lives. That's a problem. The gospel is breaking in. The gospel of the Sermon on the Mount the gospel of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the canon of those very difficult minor prophets, the warnings of Paul and the revelation revealed to us in the revelation. This word from Peter's trial in the book of Acts is a timely word and let it be a wake-up call to us. The good news of Jesus and the resurrection is scandalous and dangerous to the powers that be. So let's check our hearts to make sure we're not aligned with those powers at the expense of our aligned, uh, our dependence on Jesus. And then there's the scandal of exclusivity of Jesus that's so offensive. What do you mean Jesus is the only way? To the Sadducees and priests that must have been so offensive after all, they were the teachers of the law. They were the keepers of the temple. They were the leaders of God's people. How could Jesus be the only one who saves? Like, you got to come through us to get to the temple to make your sacrifices. And yet the scriptures point to the fact that Jesus is the new temple. He's the door. He's the way and the truth and the life. He's the one who raises from the dead. The temple doesn't raise from the dead. And the best teachings of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees doesn't raise from the dead. Jesus does that. What could be bad about the good news that we can have new life through Jesus? If you were given a free ticket to Hawaii and you were told you've got to get on this plane and your whole life you heard about this plane to Hawaii, and you were taught, I, you're supposed to go in through the aft door, or you're raised in a, in a way that said you've got to go in through the exit door, and you get to the airport, and the person in charge says you have to go through the front door. And you're told that. It's like, I'm not going to say, well, gosh, I was always thought I was supposed to go through the back door. I'm not going to get on the plane, right? Like, it's good news. Like, it's good news that we're, we're taught the way, um, to eternal life and to resurrection life. Jesus is the only way, says Peter in the scripture, and Jesus says that himself. A word we often take as so offensive um, to non-Christians. But every faith and every person has their own view of the way. Um, some people put up an alternate claim like, uh, this other person or this other philosophy or this other faith is the way. That's an alternate exclusive claim. Um, I would say the Romans were offended because they wanted Christians and Jews to worship the emperor. They may have been pluralistic on paper, but they wanted priority allegiance to Caesar. So they played a nice game. They made it all look like, ah, everybody can get along in the Roman Empire as long as. There's a, as long as there's that as long as or but or as long as you do this, 
then it's still exclusive. And in America, we exalt personal freedom and this value of, hey, you're okay and I'm okay in my little thing as long as you don't tread on me, as long as you don't bug me with your philosophy, right? But that position in itself is exclusive because if you've ever not been held that view, you're seen as narrow, right? Like there's definitely a judgment on you if you don't, if you don't take that, that call. <clears throat> To not agree with that position is to find yourself on a collision course with cultural and political powers. Let me just say this, church. The gospel is offensive, but you don't have to be. Don't be a jerk. Jesus saves. That's good news. That's what we have, that's what we have to share. You don't have to rub it in. You don't have to be triumphal. We should be humble because I don't deserve to be saved by Jesus. And you don't deserve to be saved by Jesus. And we get to share it, right? And we don't have to lead with that foot, right? We don't have to lead with weird theology. Like there's so much else to talk about when we talk about Jesus. The first thing you say to someone is, and by the way, do you know there's only one way? Oh, you're that way, you're, you're out of the club. Like that's stupid. That's not smart human interaction. So the gospel is exclusive. And it's scandalous, but you don't have to be. Remember, Jesus is good news. He's the life giver. He's the door to true freedom, to sin and death. He will make you more whole than anyone or anything else. There is no other name, no other philosophy, no other God who will save you. If you're here this evening feeling lost and unsure or anxious, I have good news. There is a Savior and his name is Jesus, and he loves you, and you can know him, and you can be whole in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, as always, when we submit ourselves to your word, you have something powerful to say. Uh, You have something powerful to say to everyone, no matter where we're at. I pray, Lord, for my sisters and brothers, are struggling today with doubt, with, um, with their own self-worth, with their own self-loathing, with fear. I thank you for the good news that you are the God who loves, the God who saves, the God who gave your very life for us. And you are so patient, you continue to pursue us. You never give up. So bless you, Lord. Thank you. And I I pray for those who are on the margins who are struggling right now, God, that you would give that sense of assurance of faith, that you would break through whatever is blocking us from experiencing your love. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who need conviction, um, where we have um, diversified our faith account Um, trusting in you for the end game, but in reality, in the now, trusting so so much of the world to give our our pleasure and our sense of place and our sense of wholeness. Lord, won't you break those chains that bind us and keep us from experiencing the fullness of life? Bless you, Lord. Thank you for being (laughs) willing to tell us the truth and to do it with such grace.